welcome to the Rondo podcast with me, Nicola McCarthy. We are back for the new season and I'm absolutely delighted that our first guest, Micah Richards, is joining us for this one. Micah, of course, former Manchester City, Aston Villa and Fiorentina player, as well as former England international, just announced his retirement recently and we're going to explore that and lots of various things on the podcast. Hello, Micah, how are you? Afternoon, how are you doing? I am great, thank you. It's lovely to <laughs> lovely to hear from you and thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. So we'll start at the start, uh, Micah, and you've obviously just recently announced your retirement. Just tell yeah. us a little bit about kind of, you know, the journey that you went on to that point and, and I suppose how you've just been feeling since then. Yeah, um, obviously I, I started my journey at Man City at 14. I was lucky enough to... Uh, play in the academy and then make my debut what was 13, 14 years ago now with uh, Stuart Pierce. You know, fast forward to now, I'm, a, I'm an old, I'm old, older man now, 31. <laughs> uh, feels like ages ago, uh, to be honest. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm delighted with my achievements in the game for sure. But at the same time, I'm devastated with the way my, my knee turned out and the injuries, you know, picking up little niggles here and there that yeah. I didn't fully achieve what my ability showed. So it's, you know, it's great, you know, to win a Premier League, FA Cup, uh, Charity Shield um, is, is amazing, you know, for anyone to do that, especially with the percentages now with the players coming through the academy, it's becoming harder and harder. Um, I'm, I'm delighted, but... You know, there's just a part of me that thinks I could have could have done better. You know, having you know, if I didn't have these injuries and little niggling things that I picked up along the way. Yeah, and you have struggled with with your knee for a number of years. How hard was it, Micah, just to accept? You know, you are still young. Um, yeah. How was it when when you realised, or how did you have to face that? It was it was difficult, really, because. Um, from 17, I've, I've always played a lot of games. And then at 18, I had my first operation. Um, I spoke with the doctor and he said to me that, you, you know, your knee's getting worse. You'll probably get a good 10 years out of this if you're lucky. So in the back of my mind, I sort of knew that it, it was always coming, but you sort of lie to yourself and you always think, oh, I'm going to be the one who can get 15 years out of it and especially because of my weight as well. I was always quite muscly and big and I, I held a lot of weight and I was putting a lot of impact through my knee. It was always going to be difficult. Um, the last sort of two to three years have been, you know, very, very difficult in all honesty. I've been in a, I'm not going to say depressed, um, but I've been in a, in a, in a place where I've not really been before because you know me, mm. Nick, I'm a, happy-go-lucky sort of person. Absolutely. Um, but the knee sort of was really getting me, really getting me down. And Understandable. Um, yeah, I just, you know, from a young boy, always wanting to be able to play football and always, you know, playing on a Saturday, for that to come to an end, it was, it was very difficult. I can only imagine. And I know that you were doing lots of work in the gym, you know, what yeah. you could do and everything... Um, everything that you could do to try and, you know, be in the place where you needed to be? Yeah, I was, you know, I had um, the physios at Man City and Villa were great. Um, I had various ice machines. I was, lit I literally took Voltarol, which is anti-inflammatory, 
like every <laughs> single day. I'd sometimes sneak out extra ones just so my knee would be in a, a good place, just so I was available for a game. It got to that stage where my, my stomach before the games was literally on fire. Like, I love the game so much and I want it to be out there so much. These are the, these are the sort of the lengths that people really don't see. You know, mm-hmm. I, I read a lot of things that, or oh, at Villa I was picking up my wages and I, and I didn't want to be out there. I'm just happy sitting on my contract. And that's the exact opposite of yeah. what I was trying to do. I was literally doing double sessions in the gym every single day. Um, like I mentioned, the, the anti-inflams. I had my knee drained multiple times just to, just to get out there on the field. And, you know, in the end, it just got too much. Mm. And you mentioned this is something you've carried at the back of your mind since you were 18. Then yeah. you come to the age of 31 and, and um, you realise, OK, I'm going to have to hang up my boots. Was there a moment, do you feel, that you did come to that realisation? Or, again, how difficult was that to face that head on? Well, when we went down um, with Aston Villa to the Championship, um, my knee was in an, an okay state, but the three the three games a week, the physicality of the the championship is just ridiculous. It's survival of the fittest. People don't understand how intense that league is. In the Premier League, you got better quality, but in terms of running stats, the championship Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, mm. in the back in the back of my head, that's when I sort of knew. I'm not going to be able to get through this. Um, yeah. And, you know, in fairness to Steve Bruce, when he, he got the manager's job, I uh, took over from Di Matteo. He threw me in straight away for, oh, Mike Rich is not playing. You know, he's played Premier League, England, Man City. And I played, started. And after 65 minutes, I've had to come off because my knee's swollen up. And if I was being honest, I think it was at that point when I knew my uh, my career was, you know, coming to, to, to that end because for me not to be able to play 90 minutes, I, I sort of, you know, I, I knew in my head, well, this is this is this is a problem here. And in the back in the back of the head, you think, well, maybe it's because I've not played for so long. So then you're trying, and then it was the preseason after I went to Portugal two weeks before the team. Um, did like a mini preseason before the actual preseason with the team, right? Um, and my knee was coping with it. I was absolutely buzzing. Again, mm-hmm. I think, oh, positive now, positive mind frame. I'm gonna be fine. And then first game, we played. We was playing. Um, I think it was in Germany. It was in Austria. We was playing a German side, I think. And after ten minutes, my hamstring went, and I was like. I knew I'd just literally done too much because I'd done my mini preseason, then onto the the preseason to show my fitness, and my body was put through so much that my body couldn't deal with it. And I had a chat with the manager, and the manager said to me, "You you're getting these problems because the way you're running, you're limping, you're trying to protect it, so every every." Other part of your body is trying to protect your knee, and you're picking up these little niggles. And at the time, I sort of, what, what, what are you on about, yeah, man? I've got a problem with my knee. It's not my hamstring. So, and you know, the person I am, I was like, I don't want to give up. But in my mind, I'm like, maybe, maybe it's got a point. And after that, that was, 
I think my, my last game for Aston Villa and yeah. I um I tried I was training. Um new managers came in after Steve Bruce and yeah, I wasn't up to the level that I know I could be because my knee was stopping me. So it was a it was sort of a process to deal with and I was I was in a dark place because like I said before, from um, when you're a boy and that's all you know, mm. and to, to come to terms with it, you know, it, it was very difficult. And how did you, Micah? Did you, is it just a time thing where you just have to adjust to a new way of life, really? Yeah, I suppose um, you do just have to just uh, adjust with it. Um, luckily for me, I, I do have other business interests. I've got a property company, mm-hmm. um, which sort of took my mind off things a little bit mm-hmm. and I've got a good really good mate called um, Madge who I do mm-hmm. some business with uh, in, in the car world as well and and he just he, he made me sort of look at things in a, in a different light and said well how bad is your life when I looked at myself and said well I'm I'm okay I'm healthy um, I've, I've earned decent money out of football um, I've, I've, I've won what I've won in the game mm-hmm. so he said well well, why why are you upset embrace that instead of looking at a negative look at the positives and it was that conversation I had with him that made me look at things a lot different and just try to embrace the next chapter brilliant which is hard for any of us you know in life yeah it's um, it's something that we all face but because I'm sort of a character off the field, I always sort of knew that would, there would be opportunities for me to work within football. Yes. So as soon as I announced my retirement, um, I've been speaking for Man City for a while, to be honest, and they wanted to me to become as um, club ambassador, mm-hmm. which was honestly a massive, massive honour, especially when the, um, the direction the club is going as well. To be a part of that now is just absolutely amazing. And um, I've signed with BBC for two years as well, doing uh, football punditry. So it's been, it's been easier for me than maybe a few other players because I'm still within the game where some players have not gone into coaching, not gone into punditry, and they've sort of lost that routine and I think that's where, you know, people can feel worthless. And that's when I think the depression can mm-hmm. start setting in for, for, for professional footballers. Absolutely. You mentioned your business interests, Micah. And yeah. I know they started from quite an early age. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, I actually um, bought uh, a place in Manchester when I was uh, 18. It's just when I signed my first deal and I didn't really think about going into property to be honest I just I bought it I spent a little bit of money on it and then Mm -hmm. I sold it and then it sort of just spiraled from there and I sort of love like different buildings old but then modern twist inside and then it just it just sort of grown from from then to be honest. Um, I didn't you know go into it thinking I'm going to do this as a business, um, and then I, it just literally happened. And yeah, I've literally been doing it for 
the last 13 years now and it's just grown and grown and grown and it was always good for me to have that because if I didn't have that I don't know where my time would be spent you know in that in that period where I was feeling a little bit low. Yes so it really helped you through um, give you a bit of a focus. Yeah for sure it definitely gave me a a, a focus because um, you know footballers I put on this pedestal like everything's all right you're earning mm-hmm. good money and but that's so far from the truth mm-hmm. you know what I mean at the end of the day we're all humans you know yeah. we 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 are brought up a certain way uh, we sort of we're like a little bit robotic at times where go home rest eat train play go and repeat mm-hmm. uh, so sometimes we are sort of put in in a way where we just this is it you can't do anything else because you're going to be distracted. But luckily for me, I managed to have the business on the side and it didn't um, interrupt my football. Brilliant. You're a Premier League winner, FA Cup yeah. winner. Obviously, most of your career at Manchester City, you the yeah. year in Italy, and then you had your time at Villa. Yeah. W- what will you look back on, make your biggest achievement, do you think? Yeah, I think the biggest achievement was bringing the first silverware We won the FA Cup and I think we'd not won a trophy for 30, 40 years. So that was a special moment because we'd gone from the noisy neighbours, you know, average Premier League side to top six to noisy neighbours. And then to actually win some silverware, there was no better feeling. And me representing the academy um, to, to show them that there is a pathway if you work hard, if you get a chance and you take your chance that you can do it, you know, Phil Foden now is is flying the, the flag really high. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's won, he's won, what is one out of two Premier Leagues, FA Cup. He's in an environment now where he's got great teammates who he can learn off. He's got a great manager who will push him to the edge. I read some comments the other week saying he's one of the best young players he's ever taught. And it's good that he's leading the the way for the academy because although that's going in the the background of winning things and having the best team i think it's still important that you can produce good you know english talent that we do have yeah so the fa cup ranks above the 9320 does it <laughs> <laughs> i just i just think the yeah FA it was cup, the first one wasn't it yeah yeah the the, the fa cup was special just because it was the first one but the Premier League is a big one. To win a Premier League, I'd, I'd never even dream of doing that. Just to be a Premier League footballer was enough for me. You know, when we was in the academy, just to play at Main Road, um, then we changed to the Etihad. Just to get on that stage and play was an achievement. To then go on and play in a Champions League and win a Premier League, it's just, it's just, it's just what dreams are, are, are made of, to be honest. And I was fortunate to do that and play an integral role in, in, in winning that. So, uh, you know, I just can't count my blessings for that. Yeah, and it was an incredible team, wasn't it? I mean, you know, some talent, but they're a really good team spirit as well in that, in that squad. Yeah, I think the talent, obviously the team now is, they the play the best football I've ever seen. Yeah. But players-wise, I think we, we would just be as strong as the team now. We had some unbelievable talent from, you know, Joe Hart at the back, 
Then we had me and Zabaleta battling out for right back. Kolarov and Klichy at left back. You had Nastasic, Jolin Lescott, the captain, Vincent Company. Then people sort of, you know, forget the Gareth Barrys, the James Milner. Look what he's done. He's a European Cup winner. Then you got Nigel De Jong, Yaya, then Silva, Tevez, Mario, Jekyll. I can name Nazari, I can name everyone. That team was full of superstars. But like you said, the sort of the dressing room was unbelievable. That's what pulled us through. You know, we was up against, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, I think it was Wenger at the time. You know, unbelievable managers. It was just... You know, to win that with that group of players, the banter we had, the seriousness, the emotions, the highs, the lows, the everything, it was just unbelievable. And that season, you know, I performed my best on, under Mancini in that season. And I think so did a lot of other players as well because Mancini really knew how to get the best out of his players. That's interesting. So how do you feel he did that? Well, he's got a... A different approach, <laughs> let's say. He doesn't put his arm around you, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, the first session we had, we trained double session. And the boys have not trained double sessions since academy. So got floodlights put at the training ground and our second session. But this is at five, six o'clock at night. This is not pre-season. This is like during the season. So, you know, we've all done our pre-season. We all think we're fit. No, he was doing tactics at five, six o'clock at night. Really? I kid, I, I kid you not. And I was like, at first it was, everyone was like, what, what have we got here? What are we doing here? And then halfway through the season, people are thinking, well, actually, let's just see how this you know, pans out throughout the season. And tactically, that season, it was so bad. I remember we, we, we'd be away somewhere and we, we'd play with four at the back. As soon as we get a lead or one nil or two nil up, straight away, we'd put five at the back. Three, we'd put me or Zabala into the three and um, uh, Zaba right uh, wing back if it wasn't him. And then Kolarov would go left and he'd put another defender on just to... Like, it was the Italian, classic Italian, well, we've won this game. Let's yes. see it out. We don't need to go for three, fours and fives. Let's just see the game out. And in that season, I remember one particular the game, we was at Newcastle, I think it was, the game before QPR, or a couple of games before, and I was on the bench. Uh, we'd gone 1-0 up. I got brought on when it was 1-0 up. Uh, I think it was Amiobi, I think, had a chance, and I dived right in front of him put my hand behind the back, blocked it. And then a couple minutes later, I think Yaya goes down the other end and scores. And Mancini was just looking at me when he, when he went in and he goes, well, I, do, you be, do you believe in my system now? And <laughs> it was just like, all right, fair enough. Um, <laughs> we just, as a group, we just believed in the yes. manager at that stage. And at that stage, I think we knew, you know, QPR was obviously unbelievable game but it was that I think when we won Newcastle I think that's when we had the belief that we was going to win the league yeah that's really interesting because Mancini who has obviously had a very successful career and continues to do so you wouldn't yeah. necessarily think of him as a tactics man yeah he's so off the field he's so laid back he's a smooth character in Mancini isn't he yeah 
His nice <laughs> hair. He's always got his glasses on. He's, he's in good shape. His scarf. Yeah, he's got his scarf. You know, he's setting trends. And, yeah, he's, he's, he's a like charismatic you? person. <laughs> he's literally unbelievable person. Um, yes. You know, some some did, did find him, you know, difficult to work with, with some of his his ways. But, you know, to, to bring a Premier League for so long to Man City, he's got to take enormous credit. He was unbelievable manager. And, you know, he's won stuff into Milan. He's um, Italian um, national team manager now. So, you know, he, he, his CV is all there for everyone to see. True. Um, comparing that to the team now, you mentioned already that you, you feel this is the best football you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, how do you think then, even in the league, since you won the league in 2011-12, how have yeah. things come on and how has the football side of things developed? Well, it's it's definitely developed. Um, Pep, in his first season, a lot of questions were asked mm-hmm. whether he could play the Barcelona style in England. Um, and, the, you know, the first season, you know, he struggled. Um, and a lot of people was like, it's not going to happen in England. And then the second season, he was like, wow, this is why he's one of the best managers in the world. And what what he's done now is look at the points he's getting. Look at the way they're playing. Like, he's he gets he's got a lot of good players but he's turning them into great players. I mean, you know, the Silvers and the Gueros and the companies and all that, they were great players beforehand. So he did inherit a few great players, but look what he's done to Raheem Sterling. He was quality before, but he's turned him into a world beater now. Look at Sané. Sané, in total honesty, I knew of him, but I'd not seen too much of him. Mm-hmm. And the way he changes games now when he comes on, whether he starts or not, is unbelievable. He's turned him into one of the best wingers in the league. And I like the way that Pep improves his players. And he doesn't always buy the finished article. He, 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 you know, Bernardo Silva now is doing things that he could only, uh, you know, imagine or dream of. Because when he first came, a lot of people were like, oh, he'll be nothing on uh, David Silva. You know, it's just... Uh, He's a he's a poor man's David Silver that I, I read in some in some articles. And did you see him last season? Oh Arguably my goodness! One he's... of the, the best seasons you know that any player has produced at Manchester City. Yeah, and that's because of the Pep effect, along with Bernardo's ability to listen, to want to learn, mm-hmm. and he's just took his game to the next level. And that that for me is why I think Pep is the best manager because he, he improves players beyond belief. And the way they play now, you've got the players playing with confidence. If they make a mistake, don't worry about it. Let's still play the same way. They've got an unbelievable goalkeeper in Edison who probably could play midfield. Yeah. And he installs that confidence in everyone. Look at Zinchenko. You know, a lot. Of, he was nowhere near the team, you know, 18 months ago. He comes in now. He looks like he's been playing the Premier League for years. So it's just a, a massive compliment to the players, the staff, not not just Pep, but the backroom staff, the medical staff, and everyone who's connected that far. And and just you know the fans as well. The fans have been amazing because when I was there, it was typical old City. And you know when we sort of won the league, you know in Aguero, 
you know, everyone thought we'd, we'd done it again. We've been typical City. We've lost the league, but the fans stayed with us. And, the, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that they're getting to see the, the great times right now. Uh, Mike, bringing it back to your own career, and if we can talk for a minute about England, um, you yeah. mentioned earlier that there's maybe some things in your career that you feel you you maybe hadn't achieved. Do mm-hmm. you think you were given the opportunity at England to achieve everything you could have achieved at international level? Well, I think because I burst onto the scene too uh, too early. Well, you were the youngest say. English defender, weren't you? Yeah. So I was still 18. So. When I'm playing for England, when I'm playing for City, a lot of people expect me to be the finished article. So yes. I had a few bad seasons, you know, from 18 up to when we won the league when I was 23, turning 24. Mm-hmm. And people think, oh, he was just a hype player. You know, he, he, you know, he had a few good games. He went to England. That was that was not the case at all. I was literally still learning, still trying to progress. You know, and at them times, no disrespect to Man City, we was fighting relegation. You know, we had big Richard Dunn was our key man. We had Joey Barton, who got a, a England um, call up. We had Distan, who was, you know, on the verge of leaving at the time. Um, and a lot of our team was made up with young, youngsters. We had Daniel Sturridge, Nader Manua, Ishmael Miller, Michael Johnson, Stephen Ireland. You know, these were players who were just thrown into the deep end because financially we couldn't go out and buy the players that we want to. So if I would have been stuck in a team under Mancini or stuck under a team under uh, Pep Guardiola, it would have been way easier. I would have flourished even more. And then when I started not playing as well as people thought I was, then people say, oh, he's not playing for England. And for me... When Capello came in and put me down to back to the 21s because he thought I wasn't ready for senior level, that was a massive, massive blow for me. Yeah. Because I did feel I was good enough to play. It was Glenn Johnson, I think, West Brown um, at the moment. And I backed myself against them, and that's no disrespect to them. So, again, I thought I was just the easy target. Oh, he can still play 21s, put him down to the 21s. Um, in 2011-12, when we won the league, arguably my best season at Man City. You know, I had assist. I was flying up and down. Um, in my head, I'm, I'm going to the Euros. Um, I got a call from Roy Hodgson to say, uh, well, I didn't actually get a call from Roy I got a, a call from Stuart Pearce to tell me there was an injury. I think it was Kyle Walker or Glenn Johnson. I think it was Kyle. Someone got a toe injury. So there was only taking one uh, right back to the tournament. So in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to the Euros. I'm absolutely ecstatic. I'm so happy. I'm buzzing. You know, to cap off a, a good season with Man City, I'm going to the Euros. And um, Stuart Pierce said to me, Roy told me to uh, call you because he knows I've got a good relationship with you. So I'm buzzing. I'm like, yes, I'm going to go. He's not going to take you. He wants you to go on standby. So in my head, I'm thinking, I've only got one right back and he wants me to go on standby. So I, in, at this point, I've lost my head. I'm so angry. Yeah. Um, you know, Stuart Pierce, he gave me my debut. He knows how, he knows how to talk to me. He knows what, what, how, how I tick. And he said, you know, calm down. But in that same conversation, he said, well, I'm taking 
the team for the uh, Olympics. I want mm-hmm. you to be a part of that. So it was rather go on standby for England or go to the Olympics. Of course, I was going to choose the Olympics. And it was at that point where I think, you know, uh, the papers were were writing, oh, Micah um, doesn't want to go on standby, doesn't want to represent, who does he think he is? It was nothing to do with that. And this is what I don't like sometimes about the media side because they don't know, you know, if someone rang me up from a journalist from a paper and said, is this true about, I would explain the situation. No, no, you know, and then it's the typical, or, you know, because he's won the Premier League, he thinks he's too good for this. And it it was nothing that was like, like, well, I was devastated. And then he asked me, do I want to go to the Olympics? And I was like, of course I want to come to Olympics. It'll be a a great experience. And after that sort of decision not to go on standby, um, my England career was, you know, in essence over, really to be honest. And um, after that, never really got called up again. I got called up, I think, once after. I think Stuart Pearce got the... Um, yes, interim. caretaker coach. Yeah, he got, yeah, he got inter- yeah. Yeah, for, for England yeah. and played in that game against Holland. And in fairness, I probably let him down a little bit. I didn't, I didn't play badly, but I didn't play greatly either. You know, this was an opportunity for me to totally grasp it but and the night they was better than us and I didn't and, and I remember a conversation with Mancini and he was like why are you not overlapping like you do for City I'm like boss I know I tried but no disrespect to what the, the players we had at the time I'm playing with David Silva he's playing me in every two minutes I'm playing with you know Aguero who will lay it off once and that's no disrespect to the players I was playing with in England but when I was playing with the players at City it was just a different level you know yeah. what I mean? And you didn't and, understand thing together. And, and, exactly. When you're playing with people every day, you've got that better understanding. So yeah, that after that, my my, my England days were, were were really numbered. Yeah, Micah. Another area I wanted to talk to you about was something, and I've heard you speak about before. Uh, when it comes to racism in the game, um, yeah. I know it's not something that we can cover uh in a podcast like this. It probably deserves its own podcast itself. <laughs> yeah, but, for sure. You know, but um, I mentioned it because we've had the Tammy Abraham incident um, after his yeah. penalty miss at the uh, UEFA Super Cup and he was on the back end of some racist abuse. I know it's something you're very passionate about. Yeah. Um, it's something that is still very much part of the game, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, how or what is it we need to do to really tackle the issue? I think it's a very difficult question because the people we, we don't know the people who are actually in charge of these things mm-hmm. you know people are quick to say they're not doing enough so I'm more interested in what do we need to do or what do we need to provide them with for mm-hmm. them to do enough so I read last week you know when it happened um that these you know there's twitter there's instagram you know social media in general on on certain websites if you try to swear if you try to call someone the n-word let's say if you try to call someone you know be racist in some sort of way these platforms normally or in my opinion they they you shouldn't be allowed to write them words they've got to do a lot more in what they're doing because 
it's too easy for people to just hide behind the keyboard and say something and think it's all right. But that's not my massive issue because you're going to get ignorant people who are going to do that. Where my angle would be would be the education side because we don't know what's going on in these people's lives, you know what I mean? And calling someone a, a racial word, we know it's wrong, but I'm more interested in the education, that the parents, the, the, the area that they grew up in, you know, is, are we doing enough to educate them, to let them know that everyone is equal, you know what I mean? Because it's easy just to blame kick it out, are they doing enough? And in my opinion, probably not. No, they're not doing enough. And that's not a dig at them. But we need to find out, do they have enough resources? Mm -hmm. Is education big enough? You know, I always think when someone's done something wrong, I always like to know why they've done something wrong. Do you know what I mean? Because people are not born racist. So it's more likely that education that they've had and someone somewhere is not giving them people the right education and I think that's uh, the issue that we need to to tackle rather than just you know blaming other people. Absolutely it's a really um, really interesting and honest way of looking at it and I think you're right it's whether it's from the home or from schools or whatever that yeah. looks like, we need to look at the root of, of where it's coming from, coming like from, you say. Yeah, for sure, because like I said before, no one's born a racist, but there's a certain part of the world that you can get away with certain things. It's just like it's just the it's just the norm to them. Do you know what I mean? That's just the, that's all they know. So can you blame someone for the way that you know that's all the know somewhere? Some somehow someone's not give them the education. Say you can't say that. You can't do that. Like you said, whether it's schools, whether it's you know in the community somewhere, something needs to happen on a on a broader scale rather than you know the 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 person who racially abused Tammy Abraham. They probably think it's funny. You know what I mean? They 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 don't actually know the hurt and the pain that it may cause somebody, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They just mm -hmm. think it might be a joke. And another issue that I have is in the black culture with their music, they're, they're constantly using the N-word and they've got a lot of, you know, fans from all over the world who are from different cultures, different generations. And because the artist is saying it, they might think it's okay to say it. You know what I mean? Yes, that's a good point, so, yeah. Yeah, so that, that for me is a problem as well. You know, black people or, you know, not just black, anyone with any sort of ethnic, you know, minority, they've got to look at themselves as well first. If, if mm -hmm. you don't want other people to say it to you, do not promote it yourself. And that is an issue that I have as well, to be honest. That's interesting. And again, very honest, uh, Micah, as well. But a really good point. Um, 
you know, Tammy Abraham, 21 years old. We know the pressures, you know, more than anyone, the pressure that comes with being a high profile footballer, you know, shouldn't at 21 years of age, which is still very young, be distracted and and um, have to take all of that on board, really. It feels just a little bit unfair. Yeah, it is. it definitely is unfair. But like I said last week in an interview, I would just use that as fuel. You know what I yes. mean? Because the pe- the people who are actually saying are uneducated, they don't really know the the damage that it's it's causing. Yeah. So use that as a fuel and be like, well, I'm gonna make a difference, you know what I mean? Because one thing he can't do is is a young striker, he's got the number nine shirt at Chelsea. He doesn't wanna let that affect him because mm. the people no matter if you do right, wrong, you know, good, bad, people are always going to have an opinion of you anyway. In this industry, not saying it's right, you have to be thick-skinned because we all, you know, I've been times on, on Twitter where I've said, some, you know, the wrong thing and I've got, you know, 20, 30,000 people, you know, at him and eating saying, what are you talking about? you this, you that. But as a footballer, unfortunately, it comes with the territory you've got to just be able to use that as fuel and turn it in that negative into the positive and he's you know I, I trained with him at Villa he's a confident guy so I hope I hope he can just you know br- not brush it off because it you know I, I don't want to say well you know it's right for people to call in their names and just brush it off but just use it as fuel because ultimately you're Chelsea player you want to get the best out of your season and you don't want to be distracted just by ignorant people 100 percent, couldn't agree more micah uh right i'm going to finish talking about this season then mm-hmm. um really exciting season we've just mentioned chelsea we've got frank lampard in charge there we've got pep looking for his third consecutive premier league title you know we've got only gonna social at united um you know arsenal uh buying loads and loads of strikers um yeah. and forwards i mean it, it just feels like a very exciting season uh can city do three in the bounce well um i would say yes obviously i'm, I'm city till i die and all that but it's going to be interesting to see in the latter stages of the season because if you've got a tough Champions League game, ultimately Pep was going to win, want to win everything. But if you've got a tough Champion uh, League game and you've got a tough Premier League game, I'm not saying he will, I'm not saying he won't, but if he can bring the Champions League to Manchester City Football Club, then... Is going down as the best manager ever yeah. at Manchester City football, if not already, to be honest. He won't want to leave Manchester City until he's won the European Cup. And I think City squad is big enough to potentially win both. That's how good I think they are. But I think this season he might just have, depending on the draw, of course, one one eye on on the Champions League. If they get the right draw at the right time, there's no reason why Man City can't do the double in as well. They probably could do more, but if you take the Premier League and the Champions League, so I'm gonna say they're gonna go for everything. But 
I think he's got one eye on the Champions League this season. I'd have to agree with you. And do you think at Liverpool with Klopp, it might be almost the opposite? They've got the Champions League and now what they really, really want is the league? Well, yeah, I, I, I think the Liverpool fans, a lot of my friends are Liverpool fans and they love the European Cup. But in their hearts, so they say, the league is the one that they really want. I think that's the one that they really want. But the only problem... I see with Liverpool is if Salah, Mane or Firmino gets injured. Yeah, it could really affect their season. Micah, I need to end on this one. Probably a pretty tough question, but best player you've ever played with? Oof, it's tough, to be honest, because when I first broke into the England side, Steven Gerrard was like no other player I've, I've ever seen. He was absolutely ridiculous he was phenomenal I just couldn't believe like great touch great technique he was an athlete you know his passing range he was one of the most complete players I've ever seen but then moving forward now David Silva would take some beating just because of his consistency I, I don't remember he might not always have played unbelievable, but I can't remember him having a bad game. And that's and that's from now till I'm watching City. He might be under par where because his level was so high, but he was absolutely ridiculous player. I just play to play like with a player like that was just a massive honour. And what made him so special was his character off the field. He was just the nicest most humble person you'll ever meet. So when you see all these footballers acting up because they are who they are, I'm like, David Silva is 10 times better than you and he's the most humble person you'll ever meet. It's a, it's, it's a close... Yaya Torre was a close second. I just got to throw in Yaya just because on his day, he could do absolutely everything. Three incredible players you mentioned there and uh, a fitting way to end, I think. Micah, thank you so much for joining me on the Rondo podcast. Your insight and your honesty has been incredible. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Enjoy the season and we'll see you soon. Thank you. 